This is Pride Month, the time to celebrate the increased visibility, dignity, and equality of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer people around the world. There have been many advances in the rights of sexual minorities in recent decades, such as decriminalizing same-sex relationships, banning discrimination in employment and housing, and of course, legalizing same-sex marriage. Yet there's also been a conservative backlash in many countries and growing controversy over care for transgender teens in the U.S. and Europe. Where does the struggle for LGBTQ rights around the world stand today? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Our guest this week is Adrian Relu-Koman, Program Director of International Social Justice at the Arcus Foundation. He was the first director of the leading Romanian LGBT rights organization called Accept, has uh, directed programs for Outright International, and served as an advisor to a Romanian member of the European Parliament, Monica Makovei. Sorry, sorry, I'm messing that up. He is himself at the center of a major case concerning gay rights in Europe. While living in Brussels some years ago, Adrian married his American boyfriend, Claiborne uh, Robert Hamilton, and sought to apply for residency in Romania for him under the European Union's freedom of movement policies. His request was denied, and the subsequent litigation went to the Romanian Constitutional Court and the European Court of Justice, the ECJ. In 2018, the ECJ found that same-sex spouses should be afforded the same rights to live and work across the European Union as married heterosexual couples, regardless of individual EU member states' stances on same-sex marriage. But the case drags on. But welcome to International Horizons, Adrian Kalman. Thank you, John. And please allow me to add to the introduction that I am a proud CUNY graduate which, uh, with a bachelor degree and City College as a base. And to answer your question, um, yes, my husband has not yet obtained a residence in Romania, which is uh, why we went to court um, in 2013, almost 10 years ago. Um, And let me tell you how this uh, came about. Clay and I have been together for 20 years now. We met and lived here in New York, where I immigrated uh, through the U.S. visa lottery. We then got married in Brussels in 2010. That is a time when it was not yet possible here to do it. The New York Assembly adopted the law only in 2011, one year later. And after we got married, I became unemployed in Brussels, and we were trying to identify how we could get back together as Clay was here and I was there. And one option was Romania, but Clay needed a legal residence there. So we Uh, We started to gather documents required by the application for residence, and one of them was a transcription of our Belgian marriage certificate. But the Romanian consulate in Brussels refused to transcribe it. So the next step was me writing to the Romanian Immigration Authority, asking how Clay can get a residence. 
And the answer was that he cannot, because the civil code in Romania explicitly prohibits the recognition of same-sex marriages uh, realized abroad. So I came back to New York in 2013, and we went to court together with uh, the Romanian NGO Accept. And um, the European Union court said that we are spouses for the purpose of free movement in the European Union, and that includes the residence for Clay. Next, the Romanian Constitutional Court confirmed that decision in spite of the marriage prohibition in the civil code, which they did not repeal. But what's important is that the Constitutional Court said for the first time that we too have a right to a private and family life just like heterosexual couples. So, in sum, we have clarified what the European Union and the Romanian constitutional law was on this issue. But the law was never actually applied to us because courts closed the case on procedural ground. So, we filed a complaint to the other European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. It is the court of um, the Council of Europe that applies the European Convention on Human Rights. And that is the court of last resort for individual uh, cases in Europe. And that's where our litigation is. You also asked me how the decision was received. And uh, in some people receive the decision better than politicians. We receive very much sympathy from ordinary people uh, to the media. People stopped us in the street in Romania to affirm their support as our case has been at, um, at news. And we also see opinion polls showing increasing support for non-discrimination of LGBT people, and that includes support for same-sex marriage. Got it. Sounds complicated and difficult, and I'm sorry you have to <laughs> endure all this uh, legal hassle. But uh, so let's uh, kind of widen out the lens a bit from your own case and uh, look at the question of same-sex marriage, for example. Uh, you know, when you started, you say it was ten or so years ago. Um, <clears throat> you know, this was still something that was relatively, I think, you know, not accepted or not established in 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 law in the Europe in Europe and the United. States. But in the meantime, it's certainly become much more acceptable and uh, much more, you know, acknowledged, uh, you know, across Europe and the United States. And at the same time, there's also been, you know, backlash and controversy about it. So how, how would you say, you know, what's the status of same-sex marriage in, uh, you know, the parts of the world that we're basically talking about now, Europe and the U.S.? Yes, I think things are very um, mixed. Um, I also like to speak more about the right to be recognized as a family rather than the right to same-sex marriage because same-sex marriage is just one form of legal recognition of uh, families. And as the European Court of Human Rights said, you know, the state can decide which form it grants, but it has to grant one. It cannot be in the situation of Romania where there isn't any form of legal recognition. Moreover, there is a prohibition explicitly enshrined in law against the recognition. So things are very mixed because on one hand, we've seen in Western Europe, in the U.S., um, a recognition of same-sex um, couples and, and families. Uh, it has come in all forms possible. Um, it has come through the courts, such as in the U.S. in 2015. Um, and that in itself shows that the legislative power is not in the position to do that. So 
we have to rely on the courts. Um, it has also come through legislative measures in various countries in um, in Europe, France, for instance. Um, it has also come through referenda, interestingly, such as in Ireland, where things were decided like that. Um, I mean, this is a fortunate case of uh, a favorable result, but as a rule, human rights should not be put to referenda, should not depend on a majority uh, will. Eastern Europe is very different in this sense because what we have seen is that in very few places there is a recognition of same-sex families. Um, and in the majority of countries, there are legal measures to prohibit the recognition of same-sex families. We've seen, for instance, uh, constitutions being amended, you know, in order to rule out the possibility of same-sex marriages. And, and that happens in places where people cannot get married do not have access to other forms of legal recognition, such as uh, civil partnerships. So such constitutional amendments have been uh, adopted from like Latvia in the north to Bulgaria in the, so in the south. We've seen it also in the constitution of Hungary, and uh, we've seen an attempt to do the same in Romania. There was a referendum in 2018, which fortunately did not reach the number necessary to pass when people were asked whether they agree to amend the constitution to rule out same-sex marriage. Again, when the civil code already prohibits it, right? And the constitutional court in our litigation did not repeal that provision. So, we do see, unfortunately, these uh, measures. Uh, the referendum in Hungary this year went further. Right? It reached the fields of um, education, whether the people can speak about these things. Right? There is a similar law in the Romanian Parliament now being considered. Uh, you know, on these issues. So I think what what we are seeing, strangely, is in general the public opini opinion moving in what I call the right direction, that of embracing diversity, embracing rights for everyone. And we see in the more populist uh, countries, the uh, authorities moving in the other direction of trying to introduce uh, restrictions in order to please and expand their base in such emotional way. And I mean, you just uh, use the term populist to refer to those states that are moving, as you say, in the wrong direction. Um, I mean, I, it sort of seems to the untrained eye, like as you go from west to east, the sensibilities change and, the, and the, you know, what gets enshrined in law correspondingly looks different. I mean, I guess, the, uh, you know, Ireland is an interesting case that you also mentioned, you know, which used to be obviously, you know, heavily dominated by the Catholic Church and its wishes and preferences. And that's very, very different now than it was, you know, a generation ago. So it hasn't always been necessarily this kind of west to east gradient, so to speak. But in a way, that seems like, you know, a fair characterization of what's happening or, or where things, different things are happening. And I guess, you know, my question to you, particularly since you are by origin an East, Euro East European, you know, what do you, on what basis do you explain that? I mean, is, there, is religion playing a role? Is there, uh, you know, a different kind of uh, moral sensibility? I mean, well, what's going on? I mean, I know you're not a sociologist, but these are the kinds of questions that I'm No, I'm an observer and a participant, yeah. I think. Yeah. Right. Um, right. I personally think 
think that a lot of what's happening today can be explained through nationalism and religion. Um, and that's not only for Eastern Europe. But in Eastern Europe, let's remember that in communist regimes that fell around 1990, we were pretty homogenous societies. There was not any kind of diversity that was accepted, promoted, affirmed in public life or by the state. Of course, we had ethnic minorities, right? These were the only minorities that were ever acknowledged. And based on which country you were talking about, they had some rights or none. But again, uniform societies, centralized policies, not a culture of dissent, of free expression. Um, and I think this have been environments where, you know, restrictive conservative movements um, found a way to, to develop because they did conservative in general means keeping things as they are right? Opposing change. So that's why for liberal uh, movements, is, it is always more difficult because it is about change. And let's remember also that some countries have never really been democratic. And I want to name Russia here, which unfortunately is a laboratory of all sorts of restrictive measures that, um, you know, were, were uh, experimented there and were imported somewhere else. For instance, the anti-propaganda laws, right, that oh, you cannot speak about homosexuality in schools, in the media, or to people under certain ages, you know. These did not only stay in Russia, right? We see, uh, we saw in Lithuania the same law being circulated in parliament in in Romania the law i mentioned earlier being considered in the parliament right now is also a kind of anti gay propaganda uh, law then russia also invented the uh, foreign agents uh, law in which their own civil society would be designated by the government as foreign agents and that would lead to prosecutions to fines to people losing their freedom russia also invented um the um, the so-called uh, undesirable organizations, and these are those from abroad and donor organizations in particular, and from the U.S. The Ministry of Justice created a list and put certain organizations on their list. And that meant that those donors could no longer fund in Russia because implicitly they would expose their grantees, their recipients there to um, government prosecution. So in sum, I think Europe is not the same. These very long historical differences do have an impact uh, in today's life. But that is not to say that things are not changing or cannot change. And I think the, the best thing that happened to a lot of us was the enlargement of the European Union, you know, because we basically had to abide not only by the so-called values and principles that were the same, but also legislation and the protection of human rights. Interesting. So I gather that your work for the Arcus Foundation also takes you even further afield to Central America and, and Africa and uh, the Caribbean. And so, I, I mean, I know it's a big wide world, but I wonder, you know, how you would characterize the situation of LGBTQ rights and activism in, you know, in these other parts of the world beyond the European American context. 
Well, obviously, each place has its uh, differences. You know, we can't compare a situation in, you know, in, in a country that doesn't have rule of law or freedom um, with one that has the freedom, Mexico, for instance, right? In Mexico, despite the many challenges, you know, people can talk to the media, can take it to the street in demonstration, can, uh, you know, come out in families. It is a more um, positive environment, you know, for instance, uh, more than 80% uh, of Mexican respondents in an opinion pool actually agreed that the government has to protect trans people against discrimination, right? At the same time, we have large numbers of cases of violence and even murder, right? And particularly of trans people. So it is very much a country of contrast to me, Mexico, but that shows that change is possible. And with an incredible mobilization of, of civil society, through my work and our uh, our strategy at Arcus, which in short seeks to contribute to increased safety, legal protection, and social inclusion of LGBT people in uh, Eastern and Southern Africa and also Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean. Through my work, I am uh, I am trained to to seek for the progress because our job is to support the people and the groups that are key to that progress. So I want to see a change that happens at the level of public opinion in these countries, again, against discrimination. I see uh, changes that happen in litigation, for instance. Um, In Kenya, courts agreed that um, LGBT groups can register and therefore have the same right to free association and expression. Um, Also, their courts ruled out um, the use of so-called anal examination to prove that someone is uh, homosexual, which were used by the police. Also in Kenya, courts uh, recognized the gender identity of people and in the, the right to change their uh, documents, such as an education um, diploma. I also want to see the formidable development of uh, movements of LGBT people and allies, such as feminist uh, movements and, and other civil uh, society. So there is actually a lot of progress and, and diversity, but there are also um, big challenges. I imagine you want me to speak about those as well. Well, sure. <laughs> Maybe not for in great length or at great length, but because we only have a limited amount of time. But if you want to speak to one or two cases, sure. Yeah, a challenge is that of resources. Uh, For instance, uh, we can't match the needs that are there and also the opportunities for uh, change. Um, I often say that the worst part of my job is to have to say no and to also explain why we cannot support someone's very good proposal or organization. And this also happens in a, in a context where there is a larger uh, deficit of funding for LGBT issues. Um, there is a study that is done every two years that shows how much goes to LGBT issues from U.S. foundations. Um, and that study showed that every 30 cents 
in a hundred dollars goes to uh, LGBT uh, people. So it's a very small amount. We also see the opposition, the conservative movements that often come from the U.S. that are a lot more successful at uh, fundraising. And um, another study showed that during 2013 and 17, um, basically the gender-restrictive movement uh, raised three times more um, money than what we recorded for LGBT uh, movement. So there is a financial discrepancy. Then there is, of course, violence and discrimination in many places. There are hostile government policies. Some of them are LGBT-specific, as uh, those I spoke about in, in Russia. Uh, but there are also civil society restrictions that affect everyone. For instance, laws related to taxation or to registration of civil society that hinder you know, the work that these um, groups uh, can do. And there is, of course, uh, still anti-LGBT um, public messaging from government officials to um, religious figures. For instance, the Archbishop of Cuernavaca in Mexico found that he needs to link COVID to homosexuality and how that has to do with some divine punishment. So um, these are also challenges that people face. Right. And it, obviously, as you say, I mean, there are complexities and peculiarities of, you know, all the different countries that have to do with different traditions and religion and all kinds of different things. So obviously you can't reduce this all to one kind of explanation. But um, so but you've also raised the issue of, you know, trans people and obviously, you know, the violence that is visited on trans people is totally unacceptable no matter where it happens. But there's, I think, a, a different sort of situation with regard to teens, right? I mean, it's one thing to sort of talk about rights for people with different sexual proclivities or whatever. Um, and it's another thing to talk about, you know, a, a teenager who's still under the care and guidance and legal you know, tutelage of their parents, um, who, you know, thinks they may be trans, right? And so, uh, you know, there's a lot of controversy around this. It's been heavily politicized by various politicians. Um, but I think, you know, it's not just the sort of benighted folk of, I don't know, Arkansas and the United States who are sort of sort of moving in a cautious direction or a heavily restrictive direction in that case. But, uh, you know, it's, it's Sweden, it's Finland, it's France, it's the UK. You know, they're sort of um, limiting the, the age, basically, at, uh, you know, below which um, kids can have certain kinds of treatments. And, um, you know, and there's an issue about whether parents should be involved in these decisions. And yes, I'm sure there are cases in which, you know, the parents are not enthusiastic and, and that's a problem for the kid. But they feel like, you know, their responsibility is to look after their child. And, you know, in general, I would say parents know their children their children better than anybody else. So I wonder what you would say about that. I mean, uh, it just seems to me a very, you know, obviously fraught kind of, um, and there's a lot of mental health issues, it seems, you know, uh, connected to these, uh, these cases. And I mean, where do you see that all going? And, um, you know, how should we think about that? It is very complex. And I'm 
don't necessarily have all the answers and I'm not a trans person uh, myself. But obviously, here in the US, we do see an avalanche of discriminatory legislative proposals at state and local levels. These create fears, invoke, uh, invoke uh, pseudoscience, they rely on the panic that can be created through emotions. Um, unfortunately, we also see reputable media, such as The Economist, which I've been, uh, you know, reading for years, very, very conservative on, on, on this approach on, you know, who needs to decide what and how doctors can or cannot speak or do. I mean, of course, all these discussions need to take place, but I think, uh, for me, three things need to stand out. One is, what are the real issues that we talk about? So uh, safety is a main issue for trans people. Um, there is a, a group called Transgender Europe that we support it, and they have a, a project of monitoring the murders of trans people around the world. And uh, 375 were murdered in 2021, most of them in Latin America, and we are only talking about the cases that were very well documented. So that's one thing, the issue of safety. Then uh, another issue is the self-determination that we all have as people and trans people also need to have. So their ability to decide to, to make decisions for for themselves. And that is important in terms of recognizing the gender um, identity. And then uh, third and not last thing is there are issues of basic discrimination of, of trans people, particularly in, in their access to health and education and employment. So those are the real issues that they confront with. And then people and, and governments come with additional ones, such as access to bathrooms, you know. So it's a very complicated situation of people who are already not accessing uh, their rights. And I, again, attribute it to the conservative populist movements that find a way to have a voice, to influence people, to increase a base and to stay in power. In the end, that is the goal. Yes, as I say, I think there's no doubt that this has all been, you know, politicized in unfortunate ways, and um, you know, it's really more about learning to accept certain kinds of people and, uh, you know, and accord them the same kind of respect and dignity and rights as that the rest of us have. Um, but instead, it's been, you know, turned into a political football, and uh, I think that's, you know, very unfortunate. Um, you know, an another question I have to say that I, I'm no expert on any of this. So I, you know, but one watches the the acronym LGBTQ, et cetera, et cetera, expand, you know, greater and greater, you know, uh, degrees all the time. And I'm sort of wondering, you know, how the ordinary person who's not necessarily up on these things can kind of keep track of what's going on, right? And what's the... I mean, so some part of me thinks that maybe we should just say, well, you know, these people deserve equality like the, like the rest of us and, you know, stop trying to sort of keep track of every possible permutation. You know what I'm saying? That it's hard to know exactly what in the end somebody's doing in their private life by and large, right? And that what we need to do is say, you know, we should accept what people do in their private lives and leave them alone. Now, I know at some level that runs against the grain of the sort of, uh, you know, 
sort of recognition, the culture of recognition, so to speak. But um, I, I just wonder whether in some ways, you know, ordinary people aren't paying close attention to this. They're just going to be confused, you know, and um, that at bottom, what really matters is that people should be free to do, you know, what they want to do with themselves and their bodies, um, you know, and without sort of government intervention in that. Does that make any sense? Well, yes, you kind of answered your question. Um, well, there's many aspects, but I think you're right about the right to privacy. Often courts would decide on the basis of this right when it comes to the fact that um, same-sex relations uh, should not be criminalized, right? Particularly if they take place in private among consenting adults. Then what I would also say is that we all have the, a multifaceted identity. And we have been born with some of that. We have discovered some of that is cultural, such as ethnicity, uh, right? Like I, in Romania, I lived, I was a Romanian part of the majority. I moved here, my identity changed. I'm an ethnic minority. I speak another language. I am an immigrant, you know, a very lucky one, um, I would say. So my my point is to emphasize how we discover or add layers to our identity and we try to make sense of it ourselves. And then it is important to see recognition from the others around, uh, around us, right? From family, friends, uh, co-workers, uh, government. So I think the same thing happens with LGBT people and with this expanding acronyms. Basically, we are seeing groups that did not have a name in the past and that affirm themselves with their identities and need a name and also need uh, specific protection of the law because theoretically there is legislation there is protection against discrimination, right? But historically, what we saw is that that did not apply to um, gay people. It did not apply to women. It did not apply to all sorts of social groups until it was explicitly enshrined in the law as non-discrimination grounds. So here is where law and societies are related, you know, and ordinary people indeed do not need to Figure out, figure it out. All these identities, but I think they, we all need to to contribute to a culture where we accept that there is human diversity and that there has to be protection in the law against discrimination for all of us. Right. I mean, I hear what you're saying, but um, you know, one of the things that struck me in thinking about this is, you know, is precisely how the you know proliferation of of uh, abbreviations and acronyms kind of points in a way to, uh, you know, the fluidity of identity, right? And that what, I mean, it's, you're a city college graduate, you'll, you'll have read your Foucault, you know, Foucault sort of talks at, uh, about how at one time people did certain things, but that didn't endow them with an identity. It didn't create a self, so to speak. And I wonder in a way, when I look at the, you know, acronyms, uh, I sort of say, well, who knows what people's identity is? I mean, it's, you know, some people, for some people, that's fairly firm and fixed, so to speak. But for others, it seems to be quite, you know, as I say, kind of fluid and 
you know, it moves around. So, so part of me wonders, well, why get bogged down in the identity question and just say people should be free to do what they want with themselves and their bodies and their, in, in the privacy of their own homes. That's kind of where I'm coming from with this. I mean, as I say, you know, I understand the point about, um, you know, recognition and recognition of legal rights and that sort of thing. But um, I, I guess I just wonder whether the identity thing in some ways doesn't confuse the problem. Uh, doesn't make it more difficult to sort out than than just to say that people are who they are. You know what I mean? Yes, um, I think you're right. And I, to me, it gets us back to accepting human diversity. But we need to do that in a way that is not passive. So it's not enough to say, okay, I am accepted that other people are different. Because when I relate to other people, you know, and I learn, uh, for instance, particularly younger people move away from gender bias right? The idea that there are strict social roles for like men and women and don't want to adopt pronouns or like he or she, uh, right? And use they. Um, and it's probably not um, easy as a, you know, um, speaker of English as a foreign language, you know, it's already difficult enough. Right. But, um, you know, the point is, we are not passive, you know, if we really respect the others, you know, co-worker, family, whoever, then we have to see, you know, the importance that these things play for themselves. And we show our respect by, uh, you know, trying to um, adapt our language and, and our behavior, because we also require that of the others in other instances in relation to ourselves, right? When uh, we get married, change uh, civil status, uh, or other changes in our life, we do want the others to relate to us accepting those changes. Well, it sounds complicated, and I think it's going to take us a while to sort all this out. I mean, it does strike me as though, you know, some of these things are quite new, particularly the trans teen thing. I mean, as you've surely seen, there have been studies recently about the numbers of uh, trans people, I guess, uh, and, you know, how much that's grown. And there's the whole question of whether that's somehow, you know, a new kind of acceptance that's allowed people to you know, assert themselves and their understanding of themselves along these lines, or whether this is something that's somehow, you know, a product of the availability of these ideas kind of in their milieu. So I think, uh, you know, as with the, the gay marriage, um, you know, that also came sort of, I think, in some ways, sort of out of nowhere, and then in the US tended to become, you know, largely accepted uh, and enshrined in law. So uh, I think many of these things are obviously yes. But what I would say is again. that we've yeah. always had these differences. We've sure, always sure. had women that had a more masculine appearance. Right, you know, right. men that had a more feminine appearance, and they right. were not necessarily gay. We right, always had right. cultures around the world that accepted same-sex families or mm -hmm. expressions of love mm -hmm. and affection mm -hmm. of same mm -hmm. gender. Right. Uh, they didn't raise at the time at the level of same-sex sex marriage or the law but mm -hmm. these things have always been there so mm -hmm. i'm not sure that it is very different we just right. see more them more often we right. speak right. more often we request more of the government and of ourselves but that is the world in which we will live absolutely well thank you so much for this i think you know very illuminating conversation and i hope everybody listens and finds this uh, useful and expands their horizons but that's it for today's episode i want to thank 
Adrian Belu Coman for sharing both his personal story and his insights about the struggle for LGBTQ rights around the world. Remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Meryl Sovner for her production assistance, Osvaldo Mena Aguilar for his technical assistance, and I want to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song International Horizons as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons.